like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 25th Psalm. Preached two weeks ago, I believe, Psalm 24, maybe it was longer than that. And so we're making our way through the Psalter when we're taking a break through our normal study of the book of Hebrews. And so we find ourselves in Psalm 25 this morning. We will be, I know this is ambitious, we will be walking through all 22 verses for our church, that's a lot. But for the sake of time, I will just be reading the first seven verses to get us going. So let me read Psalm 25, verses 1 through 7 for you. And as I do so, I remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may we tremble before it as such, believe it as such, and receive it from his gracious hand. This is the word of the Lord, of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word teaches us that the only way we can keep our way pure before you is by guarding it according to your word. And so we pray that you would empower us to seek you with our whole heart. Let us not wander from your commandments. Instead, may we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you, for you are blessed forever, Lord. Teach us your statutes so that with our lips we might declare all the rules of your mouth and may we delight in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves gathering on the first Lord's Day of the new year, the year of our Lord, 2020. And I spoke with many of you concerning your New Year's Eve celebrations. And the general consensus that I got was was that it was a rather somber and solemn time as you reflected on the previous year, on 2019, and you reflected on the many losses the many trials, the many temptations. And then as you looked forward to 2020, you couldn't help but reflect and wonder and ask yourself, does this new year in God's providence hold more of the same loss and trial and temptation? And I don't know about you, but as I think about the year that's coming ahead, I often think to myself, Lord, and I bring this before the Lord, what do I need to ask of you that I might be equipped and strengthened for whatever the year ahead holds? And since none of us ultimately know what the year ahead holds, we oftentimes don't know what to pray, do we? We don't know what to ask the Lord for. And that's why I'm thankful for a psalm like Psalm 25. Because in Psalm 25, David finds himself surrounded by enemies without and within. He feels like he's entrapped. And he's looking to the Lord in prayer. And he prays three petitions. He brings three requests before the Lord that are really perennial requests for the believer. Petitions that we should always be bringing before the Lord. That's why Theodore Beza 
Um, The successor of the great reformer John Calvin there in Geneva said of this psalm, it is a model for the daily prayers of the church and of every saint. And so what we have then in this psalm is three requests that regardless of the kind of year that lies before us, we need to be praying and bringing before the Lord. So what are those three requests? First of all, we are to pray to God, deliver me, deliver me from my enemies. And we'll see this, these petitions pop up in various places in this psalm, and so we'll see them in multiple places. So we'll see this request, deliver me, in verses 1 through 3, and also in verses 15 through 22. Second of all, we'll see that we are to pray to God, teach me, instruct me in your ways, lead me in your paths. And we'll see that in verses 4 through 5, verses 8 through 10, and also verses 12 through 14. And then thirdly, the third petition we'll look at is how we are to pray to God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins, past and present. Forgive me of my transgressions against you. And we'll see that in verses 6 through 7 and verse 11 as well. And my hope and prayer is that as we look at these petitions, that we would see how they are to be in our minds, on our lips, in our hearts, and not just asking them and going, well, we'll see if the Lord answers that, but asking these with confidence, knowing that God has promised that he will answer these requests so that we can face whatever lies before us. So let's look first at the first petition then, deliver me. Look at the superscript there. Of David. So right out the gate, we know that this is a psalm of David written by God's chosen king to lead his chosen people, the one whom God graciously entered into a covenant relationship in 2 Samuel chapter 7, promising to David, I will provide you with an offspring who will sit on your throne perpetually, forever, eternally. And David believes this promise of God, and yet as he's surrounded by his enemies, and his line is threatened of being cut off because his enemies hate him with a violent hatred, in that context, he turns towards the Lord and says, deliver me. And we see that right out of the gate. Look at verse 1 with me. David says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He's calling out to God using the covenant name that God revealed to his people, to Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3. And David's saying, Lord, I'm in that long line of your gracious covenantal promises. And as I'm in the midst of this this struggle, both externally and internally, I turn towards you. I lift up my soul to you, not to other gods as Psalm 24 warns us not to do. I don't lift up my soul to false idols. No, I lift my soul up to you, the living God, because you alone can deliver me so that your promises to me are not cut off even as my life might be cut off. He goes on to say in verse 2, O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. He's saying, Lord, I trust your character. I trust your promise to me, not just that that you are the God of Israel, but you are, as he says in the beginning of verse 2, you are my God. You are my God. And so I trust you, and I trust your character, and I trust your promises. And yet, as I look around me at my enemies, as I look at my circumstances, I'm struggling. And so I'm asking you, let me not be put to shame. Because if, if I'm destroyed by my enemies, I will be put to shame. And if they, they crush me, then they will exult over me. And yet, Lord, you've promised me otherwise. And so we actually see David's struggle here, don't we? To believe God's promise in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of his temptations. And so really what David's saying here is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief that I'm tempted towards as I see my circumstances unfolding differently than I anticipated goes on to say in verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. 
They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now David goes from, Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to deliver me. I'm beseeching you to deliver me. Now he's saying, Lord, I'm confident that you will. Indeed, none who wait for you, none who put their trust in you, none who lift up themselves body and soul to you will be put to shame as they wait for you to fulfill your promises. And they walk in your ways confident that you you will. Instead, who will be ashamed? The one that will be ashamed is the one who is wantonly treacherous disregards God's covenant, disregards God's law, and lives as if they were a law unto themselves, they are the ones who will be ashamed. And so what is David doing here? He's he's bolstering his hope in the Lord, saying, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I present myself before you, and I'm confident that I will not be ashamed as I wait for you to bring about this great deliverance. He picks up the same idea. Let's jump down to verse 15. He extrapolates this more. He says in verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. David's saying, I feel like I'm trapped. I'm literally in this net that's waiting to enclose around me, and I will be trapped, and my enemies will be able to have their way with me. That's how it feels. And yet, in that situation, what am I doing? I'm not looking for my own hands to save me. I'm not looking for someone else to save me. My hope and my trust, my gaze is on the Lord who has promised that he will deliver me, who's entered into a gracious covenant with me. And so he will pluck me from this net so I will not be ensnared. He will deliver me. He says in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. Now he's bringing, giving voice to this internal struggle that he's having. He doesn't just have these external enemies. He also has this internal struggle that he's experiencing. And he's saying, Lord, I'm lonely. As I'm experiencing these trials and temptations, I feel isolated from others like nobody else understands. And in the midst of that, I'm afflicted. And so, Lord, I look to you. And I say, turn to me and be gracious to me. Let the light of your face shine upon me again so that I can be assured that you're for me and not against me. I look to you alone to do this, O Lord. It goes on to say in verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. The weight, the heaviness of his heart is weighing him down. And he's, he's afflicted in that. And so he's saying, Lord, bring me out of these internal distresses that I'm experiencing. Because when I'm heavy of heart, I'm tempted to turn from you to the right or to the left, to look for deliverance elsewhere, to turn away from your way, hoping just for the slightest relief from the weight that I carry, from the pressures that are upon me. And so, Lord, let me not turn to the right or to the left. Relieve me of these distresses. Deliver me. He says in verse 18, Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Lord, be mindful of what I'm experiencing right now. You see the honesty with which David approaches his Lord in the midst of his struggles, laying his heart bare before him, saying, Deliver me, be with me, make your face to shine upon me. Then in verse 9, he switches back to his external enemies and he says, Lord, don't just consider my internal affliction, but verse 19, consider how many are my foes. There are many of them and with what violent hatred they hate me. Brothers and sisters, many of us need to come to grips with the fact that we have enemies in this world that hate us with violent hatred. I don't think we often think about that, but let me just give you a few examples. Who are our three main enemies? The flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, when the flesh tempts us, the temptation is, I just want to give you a little worldly amusement, that's all. It's not like I want to own you or destroy you or anything, and let's just have a little bit of a good time. That's a lie. The truth is, the flesh wants to own you and destroy you because it hates you with a a violent hatred. The same thing is true of the world. 
It may, we may be tempted to believe the world is just offering me a good time, a momentary good time. No, the world wants to own you and destroy you. And of course, we know that's true of the devil, right? Jesus says that the devil came to do what? To kill and to steal and to destroy, even as he comes as an angel of light. And so don't believe the lie that they, they want to give you a good time. They want to destroy you. They hate you with a violent hatred. And also don't be surprised then when you experience that violent hatred from your enemies. The Lord Jesus said we should expect that. They hated him. They're going to hate us because we're not of this world. And yet notice David says, Lord, I'm not going to respond to my enemies the way they respond to me. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm going to return good for evil. Why? Because I'm waiting for you and I'm trusting in you. Instead, what I do is I bring my enemies before you. Consider my foes, Lord. Look at how they want to destroy me. Protect me from them. Deliver me from them. Crush them, O Lord. And we see him asking for the Lord to deliver his, uh, to protect his um, integrity in verse 20. Look at verse 20. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Lord, guard me. May I not stoop to the antics of my enemies. Instead, he says, look at verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Lord, uphold my integrity. Uphold my uprightness. Empower me by your spirit and by your grace to continue to walk in the way that your word has commanded me. And the only way that I can do that is if I'm waiting for you to bring this deliverance. Now, here's the beautiful thing about this prayer. What we see is David go from his own internal and external struggles to then praying for the entire people of Israel. Look at verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all her troubles. Why? Because David is a part of Israel. He's the representative head of Israel who's been appointed by God. And so his enemies are Israel's enemies and Israel's enemies are um, David's enemies. And so he's saying, Lord, he's not just turned in on himself. But by God's grace, he's turned out looking for the good of all of God's people. Saying, Lord, deliver them from all of their troubles. So what do we see here? We see David waiting for the Lord, confidently looking to him to deliver him from his enemies. And David's obviously looking to the deliverance that the Messiah would bring in his first advent. That Jesus brought, the Son of God by assuming a human nature, and doing everything that was necessary for, for us to be delivered from our enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil and God's wrath. Jesus did everything that was necessary for that deliverance in his first coming. And that's what David was looking forward to. He was trusting that the Lord would keep his promise and that from his line would come one who would sit on the throne forever, who is Jesus. David's greater son, the promised heir, who would rule and reign, the king of Israel. But we're now in the new covenant. That was David in the old covenant. We're looking back on Jesus' first coming and the deliverance that he's brought. And we're now looking forward to the fact that he promised us he would come again and bring about a full and final deliverance from our enemies of the flesh the world, and the devil. And he will then fully establish the kingdom that he inaugurated when he came the first time. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters. That's where our hope of deliverance is to be. We're to be praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, and trusting and knowing that he will. And what was true of David back then, that he would not be ashamed as he waited for that deliverance, is true for us as well. We will not be ashamed as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our blessed hope. Paul makes this abundantly clear. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. In a place like Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. So there's the the deliverance that the first coming of Christ brought about. And then he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This hope that we have in the second coming of Christ and the deliverance that he will bring. And in light of those realities, here's what Paul goes on to say. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And now listen to this. And hope does not put us to shame. Just as David said in uh, Psalm 25, verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Paul's saying the exact same thing is true for us in the new covenant. This hope, Jesus, our blessed hope, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul picks up this same idea again towards the end of his letter in Romans 10, verse 11, where he says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So brothers and sisters, we will not be ashamed, although it's a struggle at times, isn't it? To wait and hope for Jesus' return, waiting for that deliverance. But we will not be ashamed as we wait for it. And so here's, here's the question then. Are we trusting God to deliver us? Are we looking to him? Are we like David, lifting up our soul to him? Are, is our gaze fixed on him and the coming of his son? Or are we, so that we might receive some relief from the pressure, relief from the affliction, going our own way, looking to false idols, looking for our own hands to save us. We all struggle with that as Christians. I know we do. But are we renewed in looking to the Lord and putting our confidence in him and nothing else in this world? I love how John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Psalms, this particular Psalm, Psalm 25, sums up this petition. He says, therefore, let us duly observe this rule of prayer, not to distract our minds by various and uncertain hopes, nor to depend on worldly help, but to yield to God the honor of lifting up our hearts to him in sincere and earnest prayer. That's what we're to do when we are facing trials and difficulties, the unknown. Cry out, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. That's not the only thing we're supposed to pray, though. Second of all, we're to pray, teach me. Teach me. Look at verse 4 with me. Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely fascinating. David is crying out for the Lord to deliver him from his enemies, and he's waiting for the Lord He's confident the Lord will deliver him, but he has to wait for that to happen. And what is the most important thing that he prays for? What does he know is more important than anything else that he needs from the Lord as he's waiting for that deliverance? He says, what I need more than anything else is for the Lord to teach me. I need you to teach me, Lord, verse 4, to know your ways Teach me your paths. He's saying, Lord, remind me of how you delivered your people in the past. Remind me of how you redeemed them from their enemies. Supremely, when you led Israel out of their captivity to Egypt. Lord, remind me of your paths. Remind me of your ways. And help me to trust that you will deliver me likewise. And then as a result, help me to walk in accordance with your law. Why? Because I'm trusting that you will do this. And I'm not giving in to the temptations to turn to the right or the left. And he's not just saying, teach me that I might know your ways, but he's saying, then lead me in your truth. Empower me to be able to obey your law. Look at verse 5. He says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I will wait all the day long. Lord, what I need you to do while I'm waiting for you, while I'm waiting for your deliverance, is for you to remind me of how you delivered your people in the past. Instruct me from your law and then empower me by your grace to obey it. That is what I need more than anything else. That is what I need you to teach me. He picks up the same idea in verses 8 through 10. So look at verse 8 with me. God, excuse me, good and upright is the Lord. 
Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Now, I just want to pause on that verse for a second. I want us to contemplate the divine logic here because it kind of makes my head explode a little bit. Here's what David's saying. First of all, good and upright is the Lord. What does he mean that God is good? Does he mean, you ever say of somebody they're a good person? That means they do good things generally, right? Is that what we mean when David says God is good? No. He's saying that God is goodness itself. Anything or anybody can be described as good only insofar as they participate to whatever degree in God's goodness because he is goodness itself. He is the fountain of all good things. All good things come forth from him is what James tells us, right? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And so there's not some thing that is goodness outside of God by which you can judge something to be good. No, God himself is goodness. And so David is saying, God, I know you're good. And second of all, he says, I know you're upright. I know you're holy. There's no moral impurity in you. You're not stained by sin. No, instead, you are, as um, Isaiah says, the seraphim are singing in the heavens, you are holy, holy, holy. You, all that you do is right and good and pure. Now, let me tell you how my carnal reasoning tears apart this logic. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, the Lord will have nothing to do with a sinner like me or like you. Right? Because I'm evil. I'm not good. I'm not certainly not goodness itself. I'm bad. I'm wicked. I'm sinful. And I do bad things because I'm bad myself. And I'm not holy. I'm unholy. I'm impure. I'm unclean. Cannot approach God. And so that's how my carnal reasoning goes. But that's not what the divine logic is here. What is it? Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. God delights, if I can speak that way about him, because of who he is. To, by his grace, apart from anything they have or haven't done, save sinners and renew them in the image that was marred, his image in them that was marred by the fall. He saves them by his grace and makes them a new creation and they begin to reflect his image and glory as they were intended to. God delights to do that in the lives of sinners. Why? Because he is good and upright because of his character. And so what David is doing here is he's saying, Lord, listen, I'm asking you to teach me, and here's why I'm confident that you will, because you're good and you're upright. goes on to say in verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Who's the humble person? It's this person that can say, I'm a sinner. I need wisdom. I'm foolish. I'm stupid. I'm sinful, I'm turned in on myself, and so I need the Lord to lead me in what is right and teach me his way. That's humility, and the Lord leads the humble person. That humility that he has given them by his grace. He leads that person and teaches them. And David's saying, this is why I'm confident to pray, Lord, teach me, because I know you will. He goes on to say in verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David's including himself as one who keeps his covenant and the Lord's testimonies because the Lord graciously is empowering David to do so. And so as a result, what does he say? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. And so he, he will make known his love he will make known his faithfulness in the paths that he has unfold in your life. You need to cling to that as you face this new year. You dread the path that's ahead. You dread what God may have ordained for you in his good providence. And you need to remind yourself, brothers and sisters, that because you are in Christ and you are in God's gracious covenant, all the paths of the Lord for you are steadfast love and faithfulness. And so David is, is bolstering his hope and confidence in who the Lord is and how he leads his people. Jump down past verse 11 to verses 12 through 14 so we can see more of this. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Now what's the answer to that question? Who, who is the person that fears the Lord? The person that fears the Lord 
is not the person that comes before the Lord like a servant comes before a cruel and demanding master. That's not how we are to come before the Lord. The person who fears the Lord rightly is the person who comes before the Lord as a child comes before an adoring, good, just parent who they love, who they respect. They stand in awe of them. They revere them. And so they want to live their lives to please their parents. And this is the heart attitude of the Christian who's been saved by God's grace. He, they fear the Lord in this way. And so David says, the person that fears the Lord, what will the Lord do? Him, that is the Lord, verse 12, will instruct, the Lord will instruct him in the way that he should choose. Some of you may be wondering, I've got to make some big decisions in 2020, and I don't know how to make those decisions. Should I ask the Lord to come down and whisper him in my ear? Or mystically write it in the sky? Or ask him to take the noodles of my spaghetti and spell out what I'm supposed to do? No. Or should I fast for a long time and, and deny myself and try to have hallucinations? And I'm not knocking fasting, but no, we, this is not a mystical experience. The Lord leads us by being committed to his word, by walking in wisdom, by seeking wisdom from wise fellow believers, by praying and then going confidently and making decisions knowing that the Lord is sovereign because we fear him. And so that's how the Lord instructs us. It's very ordinary. It's very ordinary. And David's saying we can have this confidence as we ask, teach me, the Lord will lead us and guide us in these ways. He goes on to say in verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. What's he saying there? He's saying the promises of to those who keep the covenant back in Deuteronomy, the covenant blessings rather than the covenant cursings are are the right reward, gracious reward from God for those who walk in covenant faithfulness to him. They will abide in well-being and their offspring will inherit the land, the promised land. So David's saying, as you walk with the Lord, look at, look at how he rewards his gracious work in you. Behold the grace of your God. And then lastly, in verse 14, he says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Do you have after that word friendship there, a little number one, and at the bottom of your page it says the secret counsel? The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. That's another way of explaining that friendship. The Lord makes known his gracious covenant, his gospel, his ways to those who he graciously enters into a covenant relationship with. It makes me think of what Jesus says in John fifteen fifteen. You remember how he tells his disciples, no longer do I call you servants. For the servants do not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That's what David's talking about. The Lord makes known his ways, the will of the father, to those who fear him, to those who walk in covenant faithfulness, with him. And so what is David saying here? He's not just praying, Lord, teach me, but then he's reminding his soul of important truths that the Lord will instruct me. The Lord will teach me. He's confident and knows that the Lord will. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, David knew that under the old covenant. We know that with even greater clarity in the new covenant. We know that each person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have determined and purposed to teach us. To teach us. Let me give you the evidence for that. First of all, God the Father teaches us. We know that from just one example. There's numerous places we could go, but a place like John 6.45. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this to you. John 6.45. This is Jesus speaking. He says, It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. I believe that's a citation from Isaiah. And here's what Jesus says about that. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you've come to Jesus, then you necessarily have been taught by the Father. And so the Father teaches us. He has ordained and purposed to teach us, and so he has. First of all, the Father teaches us. Second of all, here's the evidence that the Son teaches us. Listen to Matthew 23, verse 10. 
Matthew 23, verse 10. Jesus is teaching the crowds and his disciples, and he tells them, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is saying, I am your instructor. I am the one who will teach you. I am the one who will make God's covenant ways known to you. I am the one who will lead you like a good shepherd through green pastures beside still waters. I am the one who will teach you. So we see the Father teaches us, the Son teaches us, and then thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit teaches us in places like 1 John 2.27. 1 John 2.27 John says, but the anointing you received from him abides in you. Now, what's the anointing that he's talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, after he fulfilled all the requirements of the old covenant, ascends to the Father's right hand, receives the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit, and he pours out at Pentecost the Holy Spirit on all flesh, anointing them. With the Holy Spirit. And John's saying, you've received that Holy Spirit and he abides in you. You've received him from Jesus. And he goes on to say, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now he's not saying that they don't need teachers at all. Because obviously John is teaching them by writing them this letter, right? But instead he's saying, you don't need another spirit to teach you. Because you have the Holy Spirit within you. And what will the Holy Spirit do? He ends verse 27 by saying, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, as the Holy Spirit teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him, abide in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you should find this absolutely astounding that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one who created everything out of nothing, the one to whom everything belongs, the one to whom there is no beginning and no end, the one who is goodness itself, he has condescended and promised you, I will teach you. Why would we not pray every day of our lives? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach me. Teach me. And here's the question. Do we really believe that that's true? Do we really believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have promised that they will teach us? Because that will show up in very practical, tangible ways in your life if you believe that. And supremely, it'll mean that you are committed to this. That you are reading this, that you are studying this, that you are memorizing this, that you are meditating on this, that you are wielding it as a balm to apply to your fellow believers when they need it applied to their sorrows, that it means that that you use it as a dagger at times to, to cut at times into your friends when they need to be convicted and shown their sin. It means that, that you instruct your children in the ways of God's word. It means that you come Sunday morning and every chance you get to hear it taught. It means that you share it with the unbelievers around you, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family that doesn't believe. This is the best news in the world and you want to share it with them. It means that you're committed to sending out missionaries to the ends of the earth that they might be taught and instructed in the ways of God from his word where where there has been no gospel witness in the history of the world. This is the fruit that results when we believe and when we pray, Lord, teach me and I believe that you will. I am confident that you will. John Calvin summarizes again in his commentary on Psalm 25 this petition by saying, As often then as any temptation may assail us, we ought always to pray that God would make the light of his truth to shine on us, lest by having recourse to sinful devices we should go astray and wander into devious and forbidden paths. Because that's the temptation, isn't it? As we're waiting for God to deliver us, we have to pray for him to teach us because, and lead us in his truth because we're tempted to go to the right or the left, to veer off, go our own way because we believe the lie. If I just stray from the path, then maybe this suffering will stop. And so we need to be on our faces praying, Lord, teach us, lead us, confident that he will. So we've seen that we need to ask, Lord, deliver me. 
We need to pray, Lord, teach me. And thirdly, we need to pray, Lord, forgive me. Look at verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Now, where is this coming from? Does this seem like a weird break in the flow of the prayer to you? Remember, David's praying first, Lord, deliver me from my enemies. Lord, I want you to teach me and instruct me from your word in your ways. And now he's saying, Lord, have, have mercy on me. You know where this is coming from? As you spend time in God's word, as he instructs you and teaches you, what you behold more than anything else, it, it delights my heart when I ask my two-year-old son, what's the Bible about? And he says, God. I'm like, that's exactly right. I don't think he understands all of that. But the Bible is about God. And so if you're not learning about God as you're reading the Bible, you're not reading it right or your eyes are darkened. But as we learn more about God and his ways and his character, we're amazed at his greatness and his might and his power. But then in comparison to his goodness and holiness, we see ourselves, right? Because James says that the word not only reveals to us God, but it's like a mirror that shows us who we really are. How miserably short we fall of living in accord with God's law. And so, so we see our own sinfulness. And so David's saying, Lord, as I ask for you to deliver me, and as I ask for you to teach me, I know that the only way you'll answer that prayer is not based on me and my performance. Not based on me and my character. It has to be based on you and your covenant promises and on your character. And so what's he saying? He's saying, remember your mercy. Remember your character, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Now, what does it mean, for they have been from of old? I think it can mean one of two things, and I think it probably means a little bit of both. First of all, I think he's saying, Lord, it's your mercy and your steadfast love are from of old in that they are eternal, because you are eternal. And so your mercy has no beginning and your mercy has no end. And so I never have to be afraid that it's going to change. Your promises to me, your covenant that you've entered into is based on this eternal character of yours. And so as I'm going up and down and sideways and all over the place and I'm a mess, I have this place where I can rest. Your mercy, your steadfast love, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then secondly... I think he can also be referencing the specific manifestations of that mercy and steadfast love throughout salvation history. The promise in the garden to Adam that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. The promise to Abraham and to Moses and to David himself. He's saying, Lord, don't, don't remember me according to my sins and my history, but your character and your works in history, as it were. That's why he goes on to say in verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Because when I look back on my past, I can remember the sins of my youth, Lord. I've been, been sinning since the womb. So don't remember me according to my works and my character, but yours and your covenant promises which never change. Remember me in light of your covenant. He goes on to say in verse 11, jump there, for your name's sake, O Lord, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David knows there's no soft peddling his sin and saying it's not really that big of a deal. And I'm not just saying that because David had committed adultery and had a man murdered. No, the greatness of one's sin, do you know how you calculate that? The greatness of one's sin is calculated by the one who has been offended. And is there any greater than God? There is none greater than God. And so David says, my offenses are great because they are against a great God. And so, Lord, my only hope, I can never atone. There's nothing I can do to put myself back in right standing with you. You must forgive me based on your character, for the sake of your name, your glory, not mine, not mine, O oh Lord. And so he's confident because he knows the Lord doesn't change. He's confident because the Lord's covenant promises don't change that the Lord will, in fact, 
forgive him. And brothers and sisters, we have so much more clarity than David did, don't we? David was looking forward to the coming Messiah in the Old Covenant. He was looking at the types and shadows, the blood of bulls and goats and animals being shed, knowing the Messiah is going to come and shed his blood. But we have the clarity in the New Covenant of knowing that Jesus on the cross took all of our sins. They were all imputed to him, to his account. And he paid that penalty in full, drinking the fullness of the cup of the Father's wrath. So there is no wrath left for us. Instead, it's a cup of of fellowship that the Father has given us. Because we've been clothed in Jesus' righteousness, his perfect law-keeping. And that's why we can pray again and again, Lord, forgive me. I can't help but think of the passage that John wrote to his listeners in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. Let me read this for you, though. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The fact that we are confident that God will forgive us is not a license for us to go sin and do whatever we want. The Holy Spirit within us is at war, and our spirits are at war against the flesh. And so we hate our sin. But, says John, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a mediator with the Father. Jesus Christ, and I love this title, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the righteous. Because, not just because as the Son of God, he's righteous in and of himself, but as the Son of God who took on flesh and fulfilled all righteousness for us, he is our righteousness, presenting us before the Father. And, John goes on to say, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Father's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus laying down his life on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And so because this is true, we can have confidence To come to the Lord every day of our lives, moment by moment, asking for forgiveness, knowing that he will. That's why John says earlier in his epistle, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It would be unjust. It would be unfaithful of God if he didn't forgive us. And so this is the confidence that we have coming to God again and again asking, forgive me, forgive me. Because the day doesn't go by, brothers and sisters, where we don't have to ask for that forgiveness. Now here's the problem, I think. I think the problem is we often don't come with that confidence or we think God tires of forgiving us because we think God is like us. You know what I'm talking about? do Do you love being around the person who you constantly need to be forgiving. Maybe you've got that kid that you're raising that's always sinning against you. Maybe you've got that friend that's always sinning against you and they're pretty much regularly having to ask, forgive me, forgive me, and maybe you tire of it. And so you make the mistake of thinking, God must be like that. He's not. Where else can you go for forgiveness but the God whom you have offended? And he never tires of forgiving. The the well of his grace has no depth. His mercies are new every morning. And so the question is, will we swallow our pride and go to him again and again and say, forgive me. I stand in need of forgiveness again. I stand in need of forgiveness again. I stand in need of being washed by the blood of your son. Because we not only are commanded to ask for forgiveness, but we have every confidence, we should have every confidence that he will in fact forgive us. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this yet. Maybe some of you noticed this as soon as I announced the outline. But do any of these requests sound like something that Jesus told us to pray somewhere else? There are more petitions than three in the Lord's Prayer. But all of these, and this shouldn't surprise us, are reiterated in the Lord's Prayer. Why should that not surprise us? Because this is the Word of God. These were penned by the inspiration of God Almighty, and Jesus is God. So these are the words of Jesus in Psalm 25. And the words of Jesus we have written 
in Matthew, the Lord's Prayer, are recorded there for us as well. So it shouldn't surprise us that they line up. But Jesus told us and taught us, what? To pray for deliverance. When he told us to pray and deliver us from the evil one. Lord, deliver us from the flesh, the world, and the, and the devil. Deliver us from his ways and how he would long to take us away from you. And Jesus taught us to pray for instruction. And that we might obey when he told us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Teach me your ways and then empower me to walk in accord with them rather than giving into the temptation to turn this way or that so that I can be spared from this suffering or affliction. And then thirdly, Jesus taught us to pray for forgiveness of sin when he taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are to pray these things all throughout our Christian life, brothers and sisters. And I don't, I don't know what kind of year lies before you, ultimately. But what we do know, and what I do know, is how we are to pray. Lord, deliver me. Lord, teach me. Lord, forgive me. And we can face this year knowing with confidence that our gracious and glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will deliver us, will teach us, and will forgive us. So let us pray in that confidence. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are humbled before you, humbled as we reflect on who you are, that you are good, that you are upright, and therefore you instruct sinners like us in the way. May your spirit continue to preserve us, cause us to endure whatever we face in the year ahead to lift up our souls to you. And Lord, to be constantly praying for your son to return and in your word, praying that you would instruct us, praying that it would be on our lips, that we would share it quickly with others, sharing the gospel with unbelievers, praying that they would be saved. And Lord, may we be constantly asking, forgive us for our sins, and, and may we walk in the confidence of knowing that our sins are forgiven as we pray that. We thank you for how your character is revealed so clearly in your word. And we cast ourselves upon you. We wait for you. We trust you, and we believe. So help our unbelief, we pray. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.